listening to WLPN 105.5 FM Chicago, and you're listening to Labor Express Radio, Chicago's only labor news and current affairs radio program, news for working people by working people. I'm your host, Jerry Mead Lucero, and this is the Sunday, January 30th, 2022 edition of Labor Express. Yes, I know, regular listeners are likely asking, what is up with the inconsistency lately? I failed to get out a new episode last Sunday like I should have. No good excuses this time. I know this happened a couple of times over the past month and a half, and I do apologize. I turned 52 last week, and I think my age is showing ever more. Just wasn't able to pull it together last week. However, I do commit to producing plenty more episodes in 2022 and getting them out on the bi-monthly schedule that I've been maintaining for the last six years, if for no other reason than the fact that we are living through interesting times at the moment. I have not heard much talk of a strike January or strike February, and the much-vaunted 2021 strike wave, whether it really existed or not, has undoubtedly cooled. But there were so many really important developments, possibly even game changers for the labor movement in the past couple months that I feel I have barely scratched the surface of what needs to be covered and discussed. 2022 presents real possibilities for new developments in organized labor, and as Labor Express turns 18 next week, though I might feel a lot more like 52 than 18, I'll do my best to bring you those important stories. On our last episode, we covered the fight between Mayor Lori Lightfoot and the Chicago Teachers Union over a safe return to schools. The union was demanding that the mayor agree to a safe return plan, and the mayor basically locked out the teachers by refusing to even consider remote learning in the interim. Just a day after the initial broadcast of our last episode on Monday, January 10th to be exact, the CTU House of Delegates agreed to return to the classroom based on an agreement that met some of the union's demands but certainly fell short of what the teachers felt was necessary for a true safe return. We'll hear from the leaders of the Chicago Teachers Union about that decision later in tonight's episode. In the second half of tonight's broadcast, we're going to examine the question, have workers lost their faith in government? With an esteemed panel of labor studies professors. But first, on a much happier note, a Rise Chicago Worker Center announced on January 11th another important victory for the rights of Chicago's most vulnerable workers. In this instance, the classification of workers getting new protections are domestic workers, historically one of the most exploited and poorly protected group of workers in our economy. Similar to farm workers, domestic workers failed to gain the legal protections afforded most workers through the New Deal legislation of the mid-20th century. The reason was primarily racial, as domestic and farm workers were predominantly workers of color, as they continue to be today. Basic protections like minimum wage laws were not extended to this class of workers at the margins of our society. But domestics have fought hard in the last couple decades to change the situation, and in recent years there have been significant breakthroughs. A Rise Chicago Worker Center has been at the forefront of these efforts here in Chicago, and we're therefore pleased to announce a new municipal law in Chicago that provides important safeguards for domestic workers. As of January 1st, people who hire domestics in Chicago, which in this case covers a broad category of workers including nannies, home health care workers, and home cleaners, their employers must provide a legally enforceable contract that includes mutually agreed upon terms including wages, work schedules, and work responsibilities. The measure is a significant step in dismantling the informal nature of domestic employment that has created an opportunity for so much abuse. On January 11th, the Rise Chicago, along with their partners, the Shriver Center on Poverty Law, held an online press conference explaining the new ordinance. In true Chicago, as well as Rise Chicago fashion, both Spanish-speaking and Polish-speaking workers and their organizers were present. Here's an excerpt from the press conference. 
Good morning, uh, everybody. My name is Anja Jakubek, and I'm the domestic worker organizer at Arise Chicago and myself, former domestic worker. Uh, we are here today to announce a new law that went into effect that benefits domestic workers and their families in our city of Chicago. Effective January 1st, this year, 2022, uh, the city of Chicago requires all employers of domestic workers, which is nannies, cleaners, caregivers, to provide them with written contract uh, in their work, worker and native language if it's possible. This contract should detail workers' wages and work schedule. Uh, this law makes professional the jobs of those who provide in-home care for our elderly, our children, and who clean our home. And ends decades of unfair and often resist practice against those who make our lives possible. Uh, this law will be enforced by the City of Chicago Office of Labor Standards. Arise Chicago is regularly hosting trainings, providing information on how this kind of uh, contract should look like and what is required. Um, Arise Chicago also established three hotlines in Spanish, Polish, and English for workers to call. Uh, we posted sample of contracts on our website at arisechicago.org slash DW. We applaud the mayor of uh, Chicago and the office and city council for passing this law and for raising minimum wage for domestic workers to $15 per hour in August 2021, bringing it in line with other workers. To highlight how this benefits workers and employers, I'm joined today by three domestic workers, Sofia Magdalena Portillo, Isabel Santos, and Maggie Zulinska, and a lawyer for Shriver Center, Melissa Pagan. Uh, I would like to first call yes. upon home cleaner uh, and our rights member, Sofia Magdalena Portillo. Sí, uh, muy buenos días. Muy buenos días a, a los de la prensa, a los medios de comunicación. Uh, mi nombre es uh, Sofia Magdalena. Soy miembro y especialista en contratos de Array Chicago. He estado limpiando casas durante 28 años. Como ustedes pueden ver, casi la mitad de mi vida. I would like to uh, thank the, the media for being here this morning. Uh, my name is Magdalena, uh, Sofia Magdalena. Uh, I am a member and contract specialist with Arauz Chicago. I have been cleaning homes in Chicago for about 28 years. I, as you can see, is practically half of my life. Después de haber estado excluida de las protecciones legales durante tanto tiempo, estoy muy entusiasmada con el nuevo requisito de contrato para las trabajadoras domésticas en Chicago. After being excluded from legal protections for so long, I am so excited about the new contract requirements for domestic workers in Chicago. Sabemos que muchas trabajadoras domésticas entienden los beneficios de un contrato escrito para evitar problemas que han surgido en el pasado y haber trabajado por años en la industria sin tener algo por escrito sería beneficioso para ellas. Um, for many domestic workers we know, uh, you understand the benefits of a written contract from past issues that have come up 
and from years working in the industry. Having something in writing will be very, uh, very beneficial for uh, both workers and the employer. Tanto para las trabajadoras como para los empleadores, de modo que, tan, que todas tengan la misma comprensión y expectativas. So that everyone has the same understanding and expectations. Crear el contrato es una oportunidad para aumentar y mejorar la comunicación. Creating the contract is an opportunity to increase and improve uh, communication. También sabemos que algunas trabajadoras están nerviosas o temen de hablar con sus empleadores, especialmente las trabajadoras indocumentadas. We also know some workers will be nervous or scared to talk to their employers, especially undocumented workers. Y es por eso que en Array Chicago estamos aquí para asegurarse de que las trabajadoras conozcan sus derechos para saber sobre la protección contra represalias. Um, and that is why uh, we at Array Chicago are here to make sure workers know their rights to know uh, about the protections against uh, retaliation. Para saber que hay un lugar donde pueden recibir capacitación y apoyo individual. Estamos aquí para ayudarlas a superar su miedo y recordarle que los contratos son de beneficios tanto para usted como para sus empleadores. Uh, to know there is a place that they can get training uh, and individualized support. We are here to help you uh, break uh, your uh, pass uh, your fear um, and to remind you that contracts are beneficial for both you and your employer and to make sure that all domestic workers, no matter their documentation status, know that they are included in the contract ordinance. Y para asegurarse de que todos los trabajadoras domésticas, sin importar su estado de documentación, que sepan que están incluidas en la ordenanza de contratos. Array Chicago tiene ejemplos de contratos en español, polaco e inglés. Disponemos de talleres gratuitos. Array Chicago has sample contracts in Spanish, Polish, and English. We have free workshops. Nuestro sitio web tiene información sobre sus derechos y las próximas fechas de capacitación. Tenemos líneas directas a las que pueden llamar para conocer sus derechos y cómo crear un contrato. Our website has information on your rights and upcoming training dates. We have hotlines to call to learn your rights and how to create a contract. Somos trabajadoras domésticas, por lo que conocemos las luchas que enfrentan y tenemos experiencia para compartir. Podemos brindarles asistencia, no solo sobre cómo crear un contrato, sino también sobre cómo hablar con sus empleadores. We are domestic workers ourselves, so we know the struggles you face and have experience to share. We can support you not only how to create a contract, but also advice on uh, talking to your employer. Y que este, que este contrato no les llegue tarde a todas esas trabajadoras como me está llegando a mí a esta edad. And we hope that this contract doesn't reach all these workers so late in your life, like me, that uh, reach me at this age. Thank you. Thank you. Gracias.
Thank you, Sofia Magdalena. And yes, Arise has many resources for domestic workers. Follow us on Facebook and check our website again, arisechicago.org slash DW. To speak about the legal aspects of this law, I call Milica Pagan of Shriver Center on Poverty Law, which has been uh, our partner with Arise Chicago in getting this new law passed. Thank you, Anya. Um, good morning. Uh, my name is Milica Pagan, and I'm an attorney at the Shriver Center on Poverty Law. Alongside Arise Chicago, we helped to pass this new ordinance, giving domestic workers in Chicago a right to a written contract. As of January 1st, all employers of domestic workers in Chicago must provide a written contract to the domestic worker in the worker's primary language. All domestic workers, regardless of their immigration status, that work in Chicago are covered under the law. The contract must include the wage and work schedule agreed upon between both the employer and the domestic worker. If an employer does not provide a domestic worker a contract in their primary language, a domestic worker can file a complaint at the Chicago Office of Labor Standards. If the employer fails to provide a written contract, the Office of Labor Standards can fine an employer $500 for every time they fail to provide a written contract in the worker's primary language. It is illegal for an employer to take any adverse action against a domestic worker for exercising their right to a written contract. Domestic workers are protected from any retaliation from their employer for exercising their rights under this law. We encourage both employers and workers to visit the city's website, chicago.gov care, to learn more about the rights of domestic workers. The website includes sample contracts in multiple languages created by Arise and the members of the Illinois Domestic Workers Coalition that employers and workers can use to comply with this law. Lastly, as has discussed, we encourage domestic workers to reach out to Arise Chicago to learn more about their rights and get support in how to negotiate contracts with their employers. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only labor news and current affairs radio program. As mentioned at the top of tonight's program, our previous episode aired in the midst of a struggle between Mayor Lori Lightfoot and the Chicago Teachers Union over a safe return to the classroom. The day after the initial broadcast of that episode, the CTU House of Delegates voted in favor of accepting the agreement between the union and the mayor that included some limited forms of the teachers' demands, but certainly feels far short of what the union had proposed. All indications I have is that it was a controversial decision, to say the least. It's a topic we should probably return to on future episodes. I think it's an important moment in the ongoing struggle between the union and the mayor, a struggle in which more often than not, I would argue that the CTU has stood firm and forced concessions from the mayor. But I think it is yet to be seen how this latest round will be viewed by the union members and by the broader public. To be clear, the CTU, which has really been a model of union democracy, made a democratic decision through the House of Delegates process in which hundreds of teachers' representatives got to vote on the agreement. Unlike in far too many unions, this was not a top-down decision of the union leadership, though one could argue their influence in the House of Delegates is quite strong. Regardless, it is up to the membership to make its will felt on the leadership, and I certainly think blame or credit for this situation is, is shared broadly in this case. 
At the heart of the agreement are teachers' demands for increased COVID testing of students and staff, increased availability of PPE like masks, a more robust system of contact tracing, and metrics for transmission that if exceeded would require a return to remote learning. What I offer you tonight is the CTU leadership's view of the situation as of the night of the decision to accept the agreement on January 10th. Several of the union's leaders spoke during an online press conference. Here's an excerpt. Hey, good evening, everyone. I'm the uh, CTU president, Jesse Sharkey. Um, we're um, having a pre quick press conference tonight. We just got done with our House of Delegates meeting, uh, which voted overwhelmingly 63 to 37. Uh, to suspend the remote work action, which we've been involved in. Um, actually, it was a lockout. Uh, and um, we're going to talk a little bit about kind of what got us here, um, what's in this agreement, and what we see coming next. Um, thank you for joining us. Uh, and then we'll be taking some questions, of course. Uh, I, I guess just to, to begin, um, I'm personally exhausted and glad this is over. This has been a, a very unpleasant experience. Um, uh, the CTU felt like we were uh, asking for a set of reasonable things. Um, obviously, as teachers who've been in buildings since the beginning of the school year, um, who've been teaching, uh, have been doing clinical work, uh, providing IP services, uh, working with um, our neediest children, the PSRPs, uh, our clinicians and, and teachers, of course, um, we have been dealing with the increasingly difficult conditions as positivity rates rose and as the pandemic developed over the course of the fall. Uh, this was, it hasn't been easy, but we've been in there in our schools every day, uh, making the education system work. Um, during this period of time, the, the memorandum of agreement, the, the safety agreement, if you will, that we had negotiated uh, previously um, uh, during last winter expired. And so we, we spent hundreds of hours at a bargaining table with the Board of Ed trying to get a new one. Uh, and we did that. Um, not so much because we were in an acute situation right there, but because we realized that this pandemic, you know, if we've learned anything from it, is that there's a bunch of unexpected stuff and, and that uh, there's kind of a constant threat as this virus mutates and, and we uh, in school have to deal with all the threats that it represents. Um, and when I say hundreds of sessions, I, I, I literally mean we, we around the clock for, for months, uh, met all through the summer uh, and all through the fall. It became clear to us that the Board of Ed didn't really want to bargain with us uh, about a lot of the key safety features that we thought we needed. And I'll give an example about that. Um, the board made a testing program, the testing program that it had last year, it didn't continue, um, which was really a testing program for the alpha variant. It was, it was extremely minimal. And um, we were, we were as, you know, as early as June, we're saying you, you should get a more robust testing program. We can't really expect uh, this just to continue the way it is. Um, so, something could happen. Then the Delta variant came and we, we saw it coming. Um, you know, at first it was surging in the South and, and CPS didn't even like, go out and try to get a vendor to set up a new testing program until the summer was virtually over. And so we began the, the, the year with a pro, the school year with a promise that we were going to have 100% of the students who wanted to be tested would be tested. And we didn't even get to a point where we had testing in every school until 10 months into the school year. Uh, and that had some very real and, and really some very dangerous consequences. It meant that we were never really able to screen people or do a robust testing program. And so we wound up with dangerous outbreaks in a number of schools. We had an outbreak in, in Jensen School, for example, uh, on the west side where two parents died. We had, a, we had an outbreak at the Carnegie School um, where a staff member, a guy who started to become a special education teacher, Janelle Bush, um, uh, tragically um, passed away, it, you know, et cetera. And so, you know, we, we 
began to have an increasing sense of foreboding in which like we did not have confidence you know, and the board all the time was telling us things were safe. And we were watching the impact of, of COVID among our students and their families in particular. Teachers were, were, were vaccinated, uh, you know, for the most part, um, over 90%. And so I don't think our members felt personal say, uh, say their, their personal safety was, was at risk, but it was definitely the case that we felt that the safety of our families and the people who are dedicated to in the schools were at risk. And we were raising increasing alarm. I actually went to every single board of education meeting in the fall and said exactly this, which is that like, we're watching cases increase. We're aware of the dangers in the situation. Uh, we do not have proper safety mitigations in place. And I remember the last one I said, I'm not going to be the frog that doesn't jump out of the boiling pot of water um, as the heat is turned up on it. And this is exactly what happened, which is that, you know, with the, with the Omicron variant emerged um, in late November and, and came fast, it came to a school system that did not have either the trust nor the mitigation um, nor the operations in place to deal with it properly. Uh, and so when we were bargaining with the board over winter break, uh, it was just, it, it, they just basically said it's impossible for us to do all the things that you're asking. And they made it seem as if it somehow it was our fault for asking they either adopt widespread safety measures or take a short term temporary pause to remote in order to get their act together. And um, you know, that, that's extremely disappointing. And, you know, and I, I know that we have seen uh, the mayor and others with an narrative that somehow, um, you, you know, the, the uh, you know, our demands for, for, for better, better mitigations for testing, for metrics that would flip a school to remote, for decent quality masks, for all the things that we, that we know we need, um, that those things should be in place. Um, but that's not the way that went down. So I, I um, and, you know, and, and what you saw take, you know, rollout take place over the last week or so in Chicago, I think was a direct result of, uh, you know, what was really a, a, a callous uh, disregard for what, you know, and, and pre a predictable result of um, what we saw coming a long way out. And so I'm tired. Uh, I wish it hadn't gone that way. Um, ultimately, I'm very proud of the fact that the members of the Chicago Teachers Union took a stand around this. Um, and um, we're, we're going to keep doing what's right as we go forward in the city. Um, you know, it was not an agreement that had everything. It's not a perfect agreement, um, but it's something that we, that we can hold our heads up about, um, partly because it was so difficult to get. Um, it does include some important things, um, which are going to help safeguard ourselves in our schools. And um, uh, we, we look forward to continuing to keep our members united uh, and continuing to do the work to serve the people of the city um, and, and, and children of Chicago. Thanks. So look, you are um, the Chicago Teachers Union once again in this pandemic has had to create infrastructure for safety and accountability in our school communities. This is the second January in a row where we have had to be held hostage, quite frankly, um, in hostage negotiations. Because like, let's be clear, whenever a mayor and her doctor tell you that a place is safe, that you are experiencing the lack of safety, they have made a determination about what they won't do. We heard the mayor CEO tell us that they never intended to provide an agreement, that they never intended to provide us with a metric. Thereby, we started this process at ground zero after struggling last January and last February to create infrastructure and a mechanism that would keep us safe. 
right? And so what we saw last Wednesday, last Thursday, last Friday, the weekend and today were your teachers <laughs> that continuously are demonized for respecting humanity. Teachers, paraprofessionals, clinicians, tech coordinators that sacrifice their livelihood, support to their families, in order to make this city and our school district better. Chicago owes them a debt of gratitude for that because without them, you don't get a metric in your schools. However imperfect this metric is, because it is, we have one. You have more testing because the mayor was shamed into taking the testing from the governor who, by the way, offered it months ago. We have better contact tracing because it will be anchored inside of our school communities where we have agency over how to make it work well. What parents don't know is that without the, the, the workers, the school workers in your building, you don't have anything. This mayor is unfit to lead this city and she is on a one woman kamikaze mission to destroy our public schools. She has not taken good care over the safety of the workers and the students that attended. She leverages black and brown students when she is fighting, but she ain't implementing anything in that building that looks like a plan of safety. This agreement is the only modicum of safety that is available for anyone that steps foot in the Chicago public school, especially in the places in this city where testing is low and where vaccination rates are low. I'm gonna speak directly to parents because I'm a parent. Thank you teachers. Thank you paraprofessionals. Because because of them, they have more to go back into those school communities with. Beyond that, you have to ask the mayor to begin a better relationship, not just with the Chicago Teachers Union, but a better relationship with the truth, a better relationship with how you relate to your responsibility or her responsibility as the steward of this city. This should have never gotten this far. We had to walk, we had to, hmm, we had to go on a remote action for face coverings in the middle of a pandemic. We had to go on a remote action to get more testing inside of our school communities in the middle of a pandemic. She fought us every step of the way. And now she behaves as if it's a victory that we get to survive. Think about that for a minute. So I wanna lift up my members. I wanna lift up their families. And I wanna appreciate the sacrifice that they continue to make for this city to make it better and to give our students what they deserve. Jen, can you please unpack some of this uh, agreement? Absolutely. Um, we've been at the table six months and we've set very clear bars for what we were looking for. And many of the aspects of what we've been seeking 
are in agreements um, around, around the nation. Um, what we were able to secure, I think, speaks to what Stacy is lifting up, which is the lived experience of educators and students and families in our schools. And this agreement moves toward what they've been asking for for a long time, even if it doesn't get all the way that we think we should have. Um, testing will significantly increase in schools based on this agreement. Um, we've been asking for opt-out testing. The mayor would not agree to opt-out testing, but what this agreement does do is set um, a, a goal of having quick ramp up to uh, a true screening testing program, whereby at least 10% of students in every school are tested on a weekly basis. We have uh, a couple hundred schools that have languished with low test consents this entire beginning of the school year. So we, we know we're undercounting COVID in our schools. I and mean, we know that that's why some of our school communities have had to take um, action, um, try to, to, to push for safety and why our members took this action. So the screening testing program um, will be buttressed by efforts to increase opt-out that our members honestly have been offering to participate in um, since the beginning of the school year. There will be concrete um, stipends for folks to do some of that work. Um, there will be paid hourly work after school for um, staff and our members to help assist get signups. Um, there will also be additional rapid tests available in schools, in care rooms, so that symptomatic students can be tested on the spot. Um, and and uh, there will continue to be testing of staff and students in schools. Schools that had higher rates of testing um, in December will maintain their level of testing. So this agreement does not undercut existing testing. It, it adds to additional testing. Um, we are asking our members to help tomorrow in phone banking um, our families and in order to um, get testing up and running um, towards this uh, real screening program, which is something we should have had in place, which, which is something that many other districts do. Um, another key to this agreement um, was under what conditions would individual school communities pause temporarily for five to 10 days and go to remote? We know there have been outbreaks and uh, levels of COVID in our school communities, particularly the ones that Stacey described in school communities that serve black students where vaccination rates are lower, where families have been hit hard by COVID, where the trauma and the loss is extraordinarily real. Um, members at Jensen, Carnegie, and Park Manor have been saying this, um, some of them for months and some of them for weeks, um, that, that they needed some measure of protection. So prior to this agreement, there was absolutely no metric which would have flipped an individual school to remote. This agreement provides a flip to remote while we're in high transmission of COVID according to the CDC's community transmission rates when 40% uh, of students are in isolation or quarantine. And it also provides that when 50% of students are in isolation of quarantine other, in other time periods in this pandemic, a school could, could flip to remote. Additionally, there are provisions for when 30% of staff test positive or have COVID um, and, that, and that rate of uh, absence causes the overall absence rate of, of teachers uh, to go to 25%, even with substitutes that a school community could flip to remote. You know, we've been fighting to have these provisions that, you know, if the school is understaffed, and if all if so many of the children are in quarantine, it does not make sense to, to, to run school. It's not going to be safe. We, you know, these are not the exact metrics that we would want to hit, but it provides some safeguard um, going forward, particularly as we're still um, seeing what happens in this current surge. Um, we believe um, that the metrics would have prevented some of the um, most dire situations, particularly in um, elementary schools, in underserved communities, in black neighborhoods where vaccination still remains too low. Um, additionally, you know, CPS did commit um, to additional KN95s 
masks for both staff and students. And I want to be clear, we've been asking for students the whole time. Um, I will say that we've already, you know, experienced some skepticism from our members around um, them being able to distribute. So we need to, to see some accountability. We need to see those KN95s distributed um, as immediately um, so that staff and students who need them can access them. But that is a commitment in this agreement. Um, and then the last one that I will highlight, there are other components, but the last one I will highlight is the contact tracing component of this agreement. Our members um, have said for months that contact tracing is slow, that the notifications lag, or that sometimes people who they think should be contacted are not contacted. And we, and we wanna have um, confidence in the contact tracing program, because that's really what creates our ability to um, address um, exposing people who have been exposed to the virus. Um, and so, you know, we've said this for months, this, you know, CPS has said we hired enough tracers, but that's, that's not the experience, the lived experience of the, the families and the parents and the staff in schools. This agreement allows that every school will have a, a contact tracing team where our members and staff are able to be paid in order to do contact tracing work. So we think it will dramatically increase the number of people participating in the process. But more importantly, these individuals would be doing contact tracing for student cases in their own school community. They know the staff, they know the, the students, they will have a much better time making connections, getting the information, um, and sharing it appropriately, right? Respecting um, students and families' confidentiality is appropriate. But we think this is a critical uh, shift um, to bringing some of that contact tracing to the school level, where the people who are experts um, in what's happening in the school are participants and contributing to the process and being paid for their work. Um, so I'm sure we'll, we'll take some questions later. Um, there's other components, but I'd say those are kind of the really key um, parts of this agreement. To hear and uh, see the rest of that CTU press conference, check out the link up at laborexpress.org. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, news for by working people. We need to take a station ID break, but when we return, we'll take a look at the relationship between workers in the U.S. and public institutions, including, and most importantly, our so-called democratic political system. So make sure to stay tuned. You're listening to Labor Express Radio, which calls only labor news and current affairs radio program. Frequently throughout 2021, I praised our new relationship with the Labor Radio Podcast Network and brought you working-class voices from around the nation from one of the over 100 programs that are a part of the network. Though certainly we always want to focus on the unique programming that we produce here at Labor Express ourselves, I have enjoyed listening to and bringing to our listeners a taste of what the network has to offer. Tonight is no exception. In December, a brand new labor-oriented podcast was launched entitled Class Matters, an excellent name, I would argue. So far, there have been two episodes of the podcast. The title of their inaugural episode was Have Workers Lost Faith in the Government? It featured a panel of labor studies professors and union staff, as well as host Catherine Isaac. I can only bring you a taste tonight, but I think you'll find an insightful discussion and will want to check out the full podcast for yourself. Here's an excerpt. You are listening to Class Matters podcast. Class Matters is a project of the Debs Jones Douglas Institute, which works to promote a government and an economy that works for working people. I'm Catherine Isaac, Executive Director. So let's get started by introducing our panel today. Adolf Reed Jr. has been involved in working class politics for more than half a century. He's Professor Emeritus of Political Science at the University of Pennsylvania. His research interests include American and Afro-American politics and political thought, urban politics, and American political development. Also joining us is Gordon Lafer, 
whose union activism includes running a hotel workers campaign with Local 142 of the International Longshore and Warehouse Union in Hawaii. He served as senior labor policy advisor for the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on Education and Labor. He's written widely on labor and employment policy issues, and he is the author of The 1% Solution, How Corporations Are Remaking America One State at a Time. He is a professor at the University of Oregon and director of its Labor Education and Research Center. We're also joined by Samir Santi, who has worked as a political organizer for the Pennsylvania Association of Staff, Nurses, and Allied Professionals, and as a researcher for Unite Here, which represents hospitality workers in the U.S. and Canada. He teaches at the City University of New York School of Labor and Urban Studies. Thank you all for being here. I want to start with something we've been hearing from rank-and-file union members in our Debs Jones Douglas Institute workshops on the crisis of U.S. healthcare. Union members in the workshops largely agree that there is an urgent need for reform of our healthcare system, but we also hear over and over that our government just can't do anything right. Obviously, this is something we need to listen to and to address as we go about our organizing work. And it leads us to the question at the heart of this episode of Class Matters. Have workers in the United States lost faith in government? And if so, what are the implications and the consequences? Adolf, let's start with you. Well, that's a good question. Seems like a really important one right now. I mean, I'd say the short answer is probably yes. The short answer is probably a little more complicated in the sense that workers seem to have lost faith in government less than a lot of other segments of the population have. But the answer or the reason for the yes answer is basically, you know, we've had like closing in on a half century of government at every level, tilting away from protecting or, God forbid, advancing the interests and concerns of working people to feeding the financial sector and encouraging, you know, deindustrialization, job loss. And when we look at it again, about the big number is that wages and working class you know, standards of living have declined almost annually since 1968. And it makes sense, right? It's no mystery that people would lose faith in government after a while. Gordon, would you like to add to that? Yeah, I, th- I think the answer is kind of yes and no. On the extreme, you know, people used to talk a lot about disillusionment with democracy in Latin America and countries that transitioned from dictatorship to democracy. And then people discovered that the democratically elected government couldn't do anything to improve their lives. And people started feeling, well, maybe it's better to have a strong man ruling who could actually do something. That feels like the most dangerous point that we could be getting to. And it feels like things are kind of, we're not there, but moving in that direction. On the other hand, I think, you know, people believe a lot of contradictory things. If you ask people about the word government, I assume it polls extremely poorly. But if you ask people, do you still want to have public schools? Do you want to have the post office? Do you want to have, you know, a lot of things like that are still supported. And people may not think of that as government. But I think that in terms of thinking about organizing, I don't think it would make sense to have a campaign to say, let's try to get the goal of having people react favorably to the word government. But I do think that it's possible to organize campaigns around a lot of public services that people recognize that would end up being an educational kind of fight. How about you, Samir? Yeah, no, I think these are, I mean, these are great answers. I think um, both Adolf and Gordon have kind of set the terms pretty well. I think, yeah, I mean, the answer, again, is yes and no. 
what I would add, I suppose, is insofar as there is cynicism or distrust around government, kind of circling back to Adolf's point, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, it comes from the success at undermining the capacities of government to deliver for people. So, you know, you underfund basic public services for long enough that they stop working for people. And that's going to result in a degree of cynicism about the ability that they could ever work, especially for people who, you know, are certain under a certain age have never really seen them well-funded, have never been around a government service that has been actually functional and not either difficult to deal with or punitive. So I think that's part of the story also, and we'll probably talk about this, but I think there's a longer history to why this is all the way it is, which is wound up with the failures to build a more robust public sector in, you know, in this country and to, to achieve universal programs that actually could stand the test of time. I mean, the ones when we talk about what people really do associate with favorably Medicare, Social Security programs that everyone, you know, at least at some point in their life, in theory, gets access to stand in sharp contrast to services that are means tested, which I think, we'll, you know, maybe we'll talk more about what that means and, you know, how this all works. But, you know, people who see others benefiting or maybe accessing a certain kind of public service that they're not able to access because their income's a certain level, a little bit too high or whatever, that breeds resentment and, you know, creates the conditions of a lack of solidarity and contempt within the working class. And so that's part of it as well. So yeah, it's a big question, but I think the answer is yes and no, but increasingly, unfortunately, I think yes. This podcast is all about the working class. So before we move forward, let's talk about what we mean by working class. Who does that include? Adolf, what's your definition of the working class? Yeah, so I'll give it a start to get the ball rolling because I have a pretty simple sense of who the working class is. I mean, for me, the working class is everybody who has to or is expected to work for a living. Right. Uh, you know, that is people who don't live off investments or trust funds or whatever. And you know, the large mass of people whose main experience of life is having to go to a job someplace or to find one if they don't have it. Right. And of course, you know, we can specify that some more and talk about questions like who supervises who or what supervision means and so forth and so on. But my preference has always been like to start out from that most broadly shared experience among all of us who live in this or as many of us as possible who live in this country, and we can kind of slug it out from there as to who belongs to what stratum. And that's my preference, partly because, you know, since the end of World War II, if not before, elite organs of public opinion or knowledge shaping or whatever, you know, from the universities to the newspapers have tried to make class and political economy and the working class invisible, right? So we find ourselves all kind of lumped together in this amorphous foolishness called the middle class. On the refining side, I agree with what Adolf said, but I think if we're thinking about, like, if we're thinking about this in relation to the first question, if we're thinking about this as, okay, if there's a political organizing project, who is the population that we're trying to move, then I would take out some chunk of like the professional and managerial class. And I think those are people whose experiences the government and the system is working okay for them. They might not feel like they rely on government, but you know, the people who are saying now, you know, we're in a crisis of democracy because people in the right wing base no longer have respect for institutions like the courts and the rule of law and stuff like that. I think, yeah, a lot of people's experience is all of those institutions are cooked for people at the top, but people in, I don't know if it's the top 10%, 20%, something like that, those institutions work. And so I think that when we think about who are we organizing, I would not include those managerial and professional people. 
Yeah, I think that all sounds right. And I mean, I think one way, I just, again, in the spirit of refinement, and this may account for some of, you know, what Gordon's point here as well, is that I think it's basically, if you're screwed, if you lose your job, like pretty soon, you're a member of the working class, which is most people, you know, a certain, there are some people who make, they don't have enormous family wealth, but they make enough money that they could lose their job, weather it out, probably get a new one pretty easily. Yeah. Maybe they don't fit in the mold, but most of us and most people, if you lose your job, you're screwed pretty soon. You know, maybe you've got enough savings to last a little while longer than the next person, but not that much longer. So the dependence, the dependence on a job, is I think sort of the defining feature of this. And that's, you know, gets back to Adolf's point, which is really, yeah, if, you, if you're expected to go to work for a living and you can't really handle an extended bout of unemployment, which is again, most people alive today, then you're a member of the working class. And I think that, I mean, the point of this, I think this discussion is to just sort of unsettle the idea of the middle class. For so long, this I, this idea of the middle, like what is the middle class? Who's middle class? Maybe that term made sense, 30 years ago, you know, if you had a house in the suburbs with a picket fence. But I mean, how many people these days are able to access that? And I think Gordon really touched on this. First, there are different worldviews that have to do with how one sees politics and, and what one sees the stakes of politics, right? So like I mentioned at one point that, you know, back in the Watergate era, polls showed that, you know, working people didn't really care about Watergate. And they didn't care about it, not because they were cynical, but because they just knew that's what politicians do. And that didn't really address you know, their direct concerns about politics. And like our experience in South Carolina a number of years ago kind of underscored that people, so even operating in a context in which there are attempts to sort of press, you know, what used to be called hot button issues, like, you know, same-sex marriage, abortion rights, flying a Confederate flag. I don't think we ever encountered any working person who asked us about our positions on those questions because we were upfront about addressing concerns with jobs, healthcare, housing, and education. And one of the problems here is that we've got a bipartisan politics on which like both the major parties have been fundamentally committed to shifting you know, the plane of political debate away from what working people actually need to some other stuff. And I know that may be a little um, simplistic as a way to put it, but to some extent, you know, we can say, and this kind of helps us to think about what the question of what to do with the professional and the managerial strata. And as Samir noted, they're a big, wide stratum. And I'm the kind of social scientist who would say that the way that we can tell which way the professional managerial stratum is going to go in its politics is to see which people in it, you know, tend to agree with a working class program. And those who tend to agree with the working class program are on our side, and those who don't are on the other side. On that note, let's talk about what a working class program would look like. Well, yeah, I think it's the basic stuff, right? I mean, um, the right to a job and a living wage, and I mean, a meaningful wage, right? I mean, economic security, right? Access to health care and to other public goods like education, postal service, without constraint by ability to pay. You know, there's, there's just a bundle of attributes that, you know, we think that are necessary for everyone to have access to, you know, to participate fully and decently and to be a member of the society, right? So, I mean, that's an opener, I'd say, and I'll pass it on to others for the refinement. Well, how about, Samir, you mentioned earlier the concept of means testing, right? And Adolf just said all these programs should be available to everyone, you know, regardless of income. Can you speak to that a little bit more? 
Yeah, I think this is, I mean, I think this is a crucial point in a discussion like this. So when I'm thinking about what, you know, what a working class program should be, I often think back to 1944 when Franklin Roosevelt outlined what he called an economic bill of rights. You know, he's like, we got a political bill of rights back in the day for free speech and freedom of assembly and all these things, which are obviously important. But actually living a free life requires economic security as well as political freedom. And so he listed a bunch of things, the right to a, you know, a job that pays a decent wage, right to housing, right to healthcare, right to education, right to you know, security and old age, all these things, you know, some of which we got, right? Or at least a little bit of them we got, most of which we didn't. And what was kind of implicit in that is that these are rights. They're rights that are for everyone. They're basic things that a free society ought to have. What we ended up having for the most part in terms of government programs. I mean, we got some of those, right? Medicare, Social Security, right? There's some security in old age that we have, which we didn't have prior to, you know, the 1930s and 1960s. So that's progress. But most of the social programs that we have are what we would call means tested, which is, you know, this term that is what it sounds like, right? Your eligibility for them is tested based on your means. Basically, if you have an income below a certain level, you're eligible. If you have an income above a certain level, you're not eligible. That level is set pretty low. And so a lot of people who are struggling aren't able to access things because their income is just a little too high. And that breeds all kinds of resentments. I mean, you hear this all the time. You talk to people who are just by a bit iced out of public housing or food stamps or any number of things, Medicaid. And it leads people oftentimes and understandably because they're struggling and it's not their fault that they're iced out of these things, not to think, well, wow, well, imagine if we had this for everyone, but to resent their neighbor who is on whatever social program is means tested that they're not able to get access to. So I think, you know, thinking universally, you know, that like these, everyone ought to ought to have access to certain things. And, you know, and, and, you know, this is what Bernie Sanders talked about, right? You know, and, and what he got knocked on by Clinton and Biden and others is that, well, now we're going to be providing things for rich people. And like the, the level of cynicism of that charge, right? That the problem with a universal program is that it's going gonna, it's gonna to subsidize a rich kid to go to college or a rich kid to get healthcare or what. I mean, it obscures the fact that really most people aren't rich. And what a universal program does is ensure that most people who are currently struggling get access to things that they need to survive so they don't have to worry about basic stuff, like whether they're going to be able to pay rent or go to the doctor or whatever else. And so I think that's universalism is a key. And universalism just meaning everyone's in. Everyone's in, nobody's out, right? That principle to public programs is, I think, what a working class politics would look like. Yeah, I agree with what Adolf and, and Samir have said. I think it's really important. And just a f- few things that I would add also. So one, obviously, that a good government would make it much easier to organize unions in the workplace. But also, I think trade policy would look different. That's not exactly by American, but is saying, you know, a lot of manufacturers largely don't want to manufacture here, but everybody wants to sell here. I think a, a workers' government would say, look at ways to say, can we use the consumer power of the United States as a consumer market to push back against a system where all work goes to where people are the most desperate and most politically repressed. I also think technology policy might be different. We're not going to be Luddites and technology is not going to slow down, but the directions it goes in, you know, hopefully more drug research would go to actually creating newer drugs as opposed to just creating competitive products for a disease that somebody in a different company already has a drug for. 
could we have technology to make it easier for nurses to turn patients in hospitals or to have cheaper ventilators? Like you could think of all kinds of things that are not what the market has produced, but that would be useful for millions of people. And that I think it would go more in that direction if we had this kind of government. I mean, I think, and Adolf, you should jump in here, but I think maybe a theme here is a working class government would challenge the idea that everything ought to be determined on the market, right? And would say, look, there are things that there's a role for the public in determining outcomes. The price of pharmaceutical drugs and the types of pharmaceuticals that we have shouldn't be just determined based on like a handful of pharmaceutical companies, you know, trying to bet on what's going to be most profitable. They should be determined through some kind of assessment of what we need and a planned out process for getting there. And you can think about this in a variety of different industries and sectors beyond pharmaceuticals. But the bottom line is that like the idea that profit should guide every last thing in our society is clearly not in the interest of most working people who are never going to see any of that profit to begin with. And the idea that that profit's going to lead to innovations and investments that benefit working people has just simply not borne out. That's what we've been saying for the last 50 years. And here we are today. So I think generally, you know, the idea that all this stuff ought to be determined on the market is something that we, that a working class government would confront. But Adolf, you can put it more eloquently than I can. Oh, I don't think so, but, but, but I certainly agree. And I was thinking also, I mean, that, that to go back to the means testing question for a moment, yes, it certainly undermines solidarity, right? And I'm just looking at the way that this history has played out. I mean, every program that's defined for one narrow constituency creates not only that narrow constituency, but creates a lot of opposed constituencies, right? Because you create you know, the population that's partly defined through getting whatever the service or the good is, but you define also a bigger population by definition of people who don't get it, right? And we've seen this consistently since the end of World War II, like homeowner populism, right? That took shape after World War II that basically offloaded national housing policy to the real estate industry, creates a class of homeowners and workers are then encouraged to understand themselves off the job as homeowners who are arrayed against other homeowners and renters and people who are coming to challenge their housing values, who may even be the same people that they would have been or would be in solidarity you know, with around on workplace issues. And that's happened you know, from issue to issue to issue to issue. And we've been encouraged to think like this because of the last 50 years of a retreat from the idea that policy should be or should serve the interests of our working people. If we think back, you know, just to the democratic debates in the presidential season well, I mean, during 2020, you know, almost every other candidate with the possible partial exception of like Elizabeth Warren or like 15 minutes of Kamala Harris defined himself or herself by standing up to Bernie Sanders saying over and over and over, it's unrealistic for people to expect anything from government, right? Klobuchar, Buttigieg, right? All the rest of them. So how do you expect then if one candidate, right, in this discussion is presenting himself as an advocate for the real concerns of the vast majority of working people in this country, and if all the rest of the candidates define themselves by attacking him for standing for anything, well, you may not need to look much farther than that to get part of the explanation of why it is working class people have come to lose faith in government even more sharply. 
than in the past. There's a link up on the Labor Express Facebook page to the full episode that you are hearing there from Class Matters, this new podcast that launched in December, uh, as well as links to their uh, subsequent episode. So if you want to check that out, go to laborexpress.org. That's all we have time for on tonight's program, but you can always find out more at laborexpress.org, so check it out. Labor Express is a nonprofit 501c3 member of IBW Local 1220. Views expressed on Labor Express are those of its producers, not necessarily those of IBW. Labor Express is a production of the Committee for Labor Action in Chicago, the world capital of the labor movement. Labor Express is a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, working people's voices broadcasting worldwide 24 hours a day. Find out more at laborradionetwork.org. The song is our theme is called Workers' Songs, written by Ed Pickford and recorded by the Dropkick Murphys. Tune in every Sunday at 8 p.m. or Monday at 11 a.m. on 105.5 FM or lumpenradio.com for more Labor Express. Yeah, this one's for the workers who turn out and Oh no.